Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, so I think um, the big question, really, is, um, so in the UK, I think there's, the, and we kind of touched on it, about the paramedic versus doctor versus um, uh, operator experience kind of discussion. But in the in the UK, I think, certainly anecdotally, and in fact, I think it's, it's in the literature as well, there's a, um, the, the kind of concept of paramedic RSI is something that is, um people i'd say people kind of have issue with it's, it's a kind of it's, it's a regular discussion and there's no places that deliver paramedic rsi so it's all doctor-led um and the conversation seems to be about that rather than about the operator experience so i think when when the dis, when the topic of a paramedic-led rsi is brought up there's pushback from a lot of people in the medical community um and a lot, a lot of that argument is about how um paramedics generally don't get the experience the doctors do from their rotate their clinical rotations and their and their um uh their kind of different areas of specialty um and a lot of the literature that is cited in that discussion is like as as we discussed is the non-specialist paramedic literature the part trial there was the airways 2 trial in the uk which had a relatively low success rate as well so when, when it was introduced um, as an intervention for you, what was the kind of feeling for the medical community? How was that uh, received? Yeah, look, um, it's, it's definitely has been a controversial procedure in the past. It's not now. Um, it's, it's well accepted and well established, and that's due to the, to the strength of our systems and the, the training we underwent and the advocacy of, of Dr. Bernard and, and others. Um, and us being able to demonstrate to the medical community that we could do it appropriately. So there was absolutely controversy at the time. Uh, we heard we'd be killing patients and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and I think that has more to do with tribalism um, than actual patient care. We were incredibly fortunate that not only Steve Bernard, but um, 
a lot of our colleagues in the anaesthetic world supported us and, and continue to support us. So part of our training includes anaesthetics rotation, um, both adult and paediatric, although we don't uh, on road um, RSI paediatrics, uh, anyone under the age of 12 at this stage. So our HEMS paramedics do. Um, that reflects obviously a different caseload and a different environment that they have to work in. Um, but part of their deal with that is that they must re-accredit every 12 months at the, the local or at the, the tertiary children's hospital in Victoria. So that's, that's kind of interesting in itself. The, sorry to interrupt. It's interesting in itself, the HEMS paramedic thing, isn't it? Because as we've discussed, it's, that is sort of in itself evidence that it, it's not about the um, profession as much as it is about, as you say, the area of operation and operator experience. And that seems a kind of appropriate strategy, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, so the the, the uh, paediatric RSI, um, I, I've been to in 16 or years as an intensive care paramedic, I think two patients who I really wanted to RSI. Both of them were brain injured patients. Um, neither of them trauma. One of them was a post-hanging and one actually just recently um with what we didn't actually know was going on turned out to be some weird uh, syndrome, um, but nonetheless presented as a primary brain injury um, in an eight-year-old. And although there's an absolute desire when you go to those patients to treat them in a certain fashion, including RSI, I'm okay with not RSI in paediatrics because they represent such a tiny, tiny part of our workload. We see a lot of adults who need intubation or airway management, more to the point. We just don't see children. So, you know, the, the only reason our HEMS paramedics continue to do so is there is a greater need, um, not necessarily because of their caseload. They're not necessarily seeing a lot of paediatric patients. Uh, but when they do, they obviously have a very different environment in which to transport them, where safety is paramount. And the only way they continue to do that is because they are required to spend time every year in paediatric theatre going over airway management, re-accrediting. So for reference, though, we have about, I think, around 40 HEMS paramedics in Victoria maybe a little more, uh, and we currently have just under 500 microparamedics in total. So to be able to provide that level of ongoing accreditation for a very small group of 40-odd people um, is feasible. It becomes very much not feasible anymore when we're looking at close to 500. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and it's, it's kind of reflective, I suppose, of, of the picture we see in the UK. So I, I kind of feel, um, as I say, in, in my job, we go to a lot of cardiac arrests. And so um, I'm often in a position with a post-ROSC uh, medical cardiac arrest patient where you think RSI probably has a place in this patient. And that um, often comes from a position, I think, of um, comfort, knowing that uh, clinically we're quite comfortable with uh, the physiology and the pathophysiology and the management of that medical case. Um, but also 
um, largely from the fact that this is an airway we've been looking after for the last 30 minutes, say. Um, so we have a bit of an understanding of that individual's um, airway complicate or potential complications and how easy or not that airway is to manage. Whereas we less commonly go to trauma cases because that's more often an air ambulance um, kind of case. And so when I do go to a head injury patient, it never crosses my mind that I'd like to RSI that person because clinically I'm much more out of my comfort zone. And I think the risk benefit kind of situation is different because that's, you know, it's, it's different to have a self-ventilating head injury um, versus a poorly ventilating post ross patient that, that you're kind of more comfortable with. Um, so I think it's, it's something, it's, it's, it's similar in the UK, but the I guess the patients are different. Yeah, well, the, the thresholds probably are different, um, but I think that represents a very mature approach to it. Um, too much of the discourse from from paramedics, unfortunately, um, is is driven by uh, ego. Um, and certainly, when you look at some of the US, if not all of it, I have friends, colleagues in the US who are brilliant paramedics with rings around me, and their services are brilliant as well. But obviously, it's a very mixed bag. Um, and you look at some of the discourse around pre-hospital intubation, let alone RSI, and it, it, it makes me feel a bit ill. Um, the, the, the attitudes and the egos and the, the lack of insight. Um, one of the advantages, of course, um, with that post-arrest patient you're talking about is, by and large, we know that our uh, fallback plan already works. So the worst case scenario, sort of we go to intubate a patient and for whatever reason we are unable to, we already know that the LMA has been working, the IGL has been working. So there's a lot less stress, I suppose, in where do we go with a, a failed intubation because um, failed intubations happen. It's not a reflection of, a, of an individual or a system. Um, it just, it happens. Um, so, but knowing you've got a fallback that already works is, is, is a great comfort. Yeah. And I think, I think for me, I mean, I don't have experience or really the expertise to comment too much, but I think that's, that is my, um, kind of logical stance on the situation is, as you say, there's so many layers of fallback in the, in that specific context, as you say, that firstly, the patient's. Um, you've been looking after the airway for a while, so you you know, especially if you reach the ROSC phase, that you're definitely able to ventilate that patient um, and oxygenate them. And so if you do, if the intubation does fail, um, then you have the fallback in the supraglottic airway. And there's plenty of evidence to say that a paralysed patient can be ventilated well and safely with supraglottic airways. Um, Actually, and so I think that's, there's that's modern, it's, modern it's, surgery, it's, isn't it? That's that's most patients. Well, exactly, and that's the thing. And and we we also have um, because of the sedation drugs we carry and and the uh, cases we go to, we also have front of the neck access. So you then have that layer as well. Um, and again, the data shows that generally pre hospital pre hospitally front of neck access is a quite successful intervention. And so there's so many layers of. Um, safety that for me the kind of risk benefit seems appropriate in in that regard but that kind of leads me to the to, to one of the final questions i guess which is um how do you deliver that intervention safely because 
in the UK, we, we work in a model where uh, we work on cars and by ourselves and then we go to support a crew and generally there'll be only one uh, critical care paramedic with a mixture of ambulance grades um, and unless it's it's kind of it's only specialist special circumstances pediatric arrest or significant trauma where you'd expect to see more than one critical care person um, and so how does that work for you in delivering that intervention do you have multiple icps um, do you have a set requirement yeah. for who's needed so um there is a, a definite uh, or you know a very clear uh, organizational preference that two intensive care paramedics are involved within the uh, RSI and there is caveat within our guidelines saying that if you are unsupported if you're there on your own you do not oblige to carry out RSI um, and I'm fortunate I work in a metropolitan area that that is usually the case however uh, my colleagues who work in rural areas that is almost never the case um, so we rely on a very robust training system uh, we rely on very clear and robust guidelines. Uh, we do have checklists. I am a bit checklist agnostic, um, but I think there are definitely circumstances where they are worth their weight in gold. So in my setting, generally, I work in a, a relatively small urban area with intensive care paramedics that I most likely have worked with for a long time. We have all trained the same. We all share a mental model. We talk about our cases. And checklists in that environment are of less benefit than if we're looking at a scratch team who don't know each other, who have very clinical levels, clinical experience, clinical knowledge. Um, and, and that's the environment where uh, a checklist is absolutely um, required. Um, so that is... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Generally how we go about it, definitely two paramedics, uh, intensive care paramedics if we can. Um, and if not, we can still intubate patients, but we are supported not to. Um, and that just recognises the, the cognitive load, the bandwidth required. There's a difference between the uncomplicated and the complicated, you know, your threshold for when you might progress with intubation, when you won't we'll obviously change with your patient. Um, there are cases we've reviewed where 
intubation was required and didn't occur, we tend to be more stringent about errors of commission though than we are errors of omission. Um, and it's something that uh, I'm also sort of struggling with a little bit in reviewing cases, which is part of my role, um, is we are quick to review and remediate where errors are perceived to have come from actions. Uh, we tend to let slide incidents where the errors are of omission where people say, oh, no, I just decided to load and go. Um, and, and loading and going doesn't work if your patient isn't ventilating or oxygenating. So I don't think it's defensible. So it's, it's just a cultural thing um, and something we need to or we are addressing. Yeah. I think that's an interesting, and it generates a discussion in itself, I suppose, doesn't it? But I think that's an interesting point, like you say, is if you're the, and it's, I think it's the same in, in most services, but if you're collectively, if we're looking at um, errors of commission, as you say, it kind of suggests that the intervention is still under scrutiny. Whereas if you objectively think this intervention is appropriate. We've proved that with the data and the literature and whatever, and this is now an objectively safe intervention that we do as a service. Then, as you say, we should be looking at, yes, problems where it was used inappropriately, but also those patients who, were, um, who weren't delivered that intervention and actually might have benefited from it. They should have, as you say, a similar level of scrutiny because um, if objectively you think the intervention is safe and yeah, we've moved past why did you do this? And, and we're now at a point where we're comfortable enough with the procedure and the safety of it and the ability of our paramedics to carry it out um, that we're now at the point of, of not asking why did you do it, but selecting those cases, seeing those cases and saying, well, actually, why didn't you RSI someone in this setting? It's no different to why didn't you cardiovert this patient or, you know, we, we're, we're at that level of comfort. Um with it. Um, there are still challenges though. Uh, one of the challenges we have is actually the number of intensive care paramedics and the number of intubations they're carrying out and how we ensure that. So we, we, we intubate or we RSI around 1,200 times a year in Victoria, spread across our... How, how does that work out per individual? Well, that's the issue, um, is, is that that is fairly concentrated into a relatively small percentage of those intensive care paramedics. So um, Victoria is a state that covers 276,000 odd square kilometres. It's a big place. And we have intensive care paramedics right across it. Um, so for me, in a uh, relatively low socioeconomic busy urban setting, I intubate an RSI a lot. Um, I'd be very surprised if I went a week without intubating at least one person, if not more. Um, for colleagues who work in rural or remote areas, that becomes problematic if you're only seeing one or two patients a year who might need intubation, let alone RSI. 
So one of the things we're, we're thinking about at the moment, uh, our medical director, David Anderson, um, and, and various people involved in, in sort of the uh, uh, quality assurance side of things, we're, we're, we're trying to think about how we manage that risk. It's not about individuals. It's not about, you know, Joe Bloggs doesn't intubate anyone, so he's terrible. It's about how do we manage the risk of people who are not doing a high-risk procedure often enough to feel comfortable with it um, or worse, are comfortable with it but aren't proficient with it. Um, and, and so that's our, one of our ongoing challenges. Yeah, I think so. So what we found with our um, service evaluation is our specialist parents are intubating about 30 people a year on average um which is similar to other services but then it for, for me it's interesting to kind of reflect on that number because without the ability to provide post-ROSC airway management um or in fact and sorry without the ability to intubate anyone that's not in cardiac arrest essentially obviously those numbers are going to be smaller than if there was that ability um and so we have the association of anaesthetists in the uk basically recommends that an intubator and actually their language is quite progressive i think as well they don't refer to specialties they just say uh i don't know what their terminology is but they refer to an operator and they basically say that the operator has to have um i think from the top of my head it's about 60 intubations a year um with a mixture of um real life cases and simulation although i think the, the predominant um experience in real life cases and you kind of think, I think probably in our service, given that we're intubating 30 cardiac arrests a year, probably if we did have the ability to provide um, uh, drug-assisted or RSI intubation um, outside of that context, the numbers would probably increase and actually would, would probably meet that. Um, yeah. So, um, and, but, but then again, we don't have these, we don't have the same split in terms of rural and urban services. Our, certainly where I work, um, it's generally the same mix of, semi-urban which in the uk is very different to what what your definition would be i'm sure <laughs> yeah yeah um you know with those sorts of numbers i think you certainly get there so the, the the 60 number comes from a paper from a bit of literature um whose author and title completely escapes me at the moment the actual number 64 a year to be proficient uh quite how that works i'm not entirely sure um but certainly with a mix of real world and simulation, I think you'd, you'd, you'd absolutely be able to get there. So if I were to design an RSI program, and, and the thing that any service needs to think about if they do want to go ahead with this is it's, is it's hard work. Um, it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of energy, it takes a lot of money, um, because it has to be done properly or not at all. Um, so there has to be buy-in from the entire organisation, from the from the specialist paramedics through to upper management and through the, the sort of medical fraternity in the area as well. But the the cardiac arrest would certainly be the sort of starting point if I were to design a system from what you described to say, well, we see X number of cardiac arrests. Um, we know we have the fallbacks, we have front and neck access, we have working LMAs. Um, we also have time. So, you know, not that we want to dawdle on scene with post-arrest patient, but optimising physiology 
is important and it is not the same as having a bleeding trauma patient for whom we can't optimise physiology where transport is of greater importance. A bit of time spent optimising physiology, ventilation, oxygenation, perfusion is, is time well spent with a post-arrest patient. So that would be the, the in is start, you know, in, in for selected specialist paramedics in these circumstances, you can go ahead and RSI the post-arrest patient. That would then allow you to demonstrate competency, safety, review it. And as we did in Victoria post our trial, expand the indications and expand who we can intubate, who we can RSI, because we can demonstrate we can do it safely in this cohort and we'll keep spreading it to other cohorts as is appropriate. See what happens to that. I think um, the, the, the other thing that kind of springs to mind is, um, as I said, uh, so we, we have ALS paramedics or the version of, um, but we also have a model in the UK where we have um, multiple different grades. And so we have support workers who um, are kind of assistant role um, and don't have any sort of clinical autonomy um, to work by themselves. But then we have a middle area where we have associate ambulance practitioners or ambulance technicians um, who are a lower grade than paramedics. So can't provide ALS interventions like vascular access and drugs um, or intubation. Um, but they are considered clinically autonomous in that they can be the lead clinician on an ambulance. Um, and so quite often we work with crews um, who are uh, non-paramedic crews. So as and I mentioned before, you might go to a cardiac arrest and you're the, the two crews that are there don't have paramedics. And so the, there's more responsibility on the specialist paramedic to provide uh, paramedic intervention as well. So, you know, vascular access, cardiac arrest drugs and, and all of that kind of stuff. And, um, and so I think that would be an added layer of complication if you're going to uh, try and provide a RSI intervention. Um, but then I wonder, that kind of leads me on to the question of experience. So what, how you, we've, we've discussed the experience of um, ICPs, but what is the experience of uh, paramedics in terms of assisting with that? Because I, I think in, in my experience, often um, ambulance crews are very good at assisting with intubation, but sometimes you work with a crew who's newly qualified or hasn't been to a cardiac arrest for over a year um, and they don't have the bandwidth or the kind of knowledge or experience to assist you with that intubation attempt and so it's a much more lonely place what, what, what's the kind of mixture for you yeah absolutely um yeah so i mean I, I guess in some ways we're fortunate that we don't have that degree of of um gradient um we're, we're pretty fortunate that we have our AOS paramedics and we have our intensive care paramedics and we don't sort of have further gradient with that said um we have a very uh, a, a young workforce now i'm categorically a dinosaur now um we've had a lot of recruitment um over covid so we have a lot of workforce who have never seen uh, a cardiac arrest let alone an rsi and, and the ones who have, maybe they see a couple a year. So their ability to assist really depends still, though they're all at the same level, still does depend on their experience as well. 
Um, it's an area that we have tried to address in changing the way we deliver RSI. So previously, what we tended to do was um, one microparametric would run the job, essentially. Uh, we'd do things like gain the access and draw the drugs up. And the other person, the other microparameter was just the airway person. He intubated. And one of our ALS colleagues assisted us in the intubation. But of course, they don't have the experience in airway management that intensive care paramedics do. So part of our um, approach to managing that risk and managing those issues of, of bandwidth and assistance is we now mandate that or mandate's probably too strong a word. Uh, we, we strongly suggest that the two microparamedics are on the airway. So your assistant, should things go wrong on the airway, is an experienced microparamedic, like in turn potentially. Um, and the drugs are given by an advanced life support paramedic under your direction. So little things like that um, help change things. It's also one of the areas, you know, where I say a, a, an organisation has to be committed. It would have to also be committed to providing that kind of resourcing to a case, um, which in this day and age, I know the pressures the NHS are under and I, we are sharing those issues, although perhaps not to the same degree yet. Um, we're all under a lot of pressure, workload, availability and all that sort of stuff. So being able to do that in this day and age is obviously potentially really difficult. Yeah, yeah, that is a fair point. Um, I think, and, and certainly I think that's the way uh, the air ambulance charities in the UK have worked very well in that regard. I mean, obviously they're largely outside of the politics of the NHS being a charity model but I think in terms of their clinical response is, is obviously it's a two-person team uh, which takes away all of that um, uh, reliance upon the the team that you end up working with and so they can they can really control um, they can control those factors very well uh, and you know often you know if, if there's a if there's a good team there's an experienced team and they'll they'll um, empower that team to um, assist with interventions and, and run the Kydec arrest, for instance. But if the team is inexperienced um, or doesn't have the knowledge to assist, then having a two-person, uh, well-versed team um, just means they can provide that intervention in any circumstance. So I think that's certainly a kind of cornerstone of, of their success as a model. Yeah, I think it uh, reflects all the things we've talked about as it's about... Um strong systems and support and all those sorts of things. Um, and, and if that's the way it's provided, then it's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I definitely advocate for pre-hospital RSI regardless of who is providing it, so long as it's done well. Um, the patient doesn't care. The patient wants to know that the procedure is done professionally and safely and so forth in as much as that they're probably not in a position to, to know what's going on at all. But... Um, you know, I don't think they would care at the end of the day if they walked out of a hospital neurologically intact that it was a paramedic or a nurse or a doctor or a whoever. They'd just be grateful that it was done well. Yeah, which I think is the perfect point to end on, really, uh, is the patient experience, isn't it? And I think that, that kind of underlines the whole conversation, as you say, is that ultimately it's not. I think for, for, certainly for the patient, it's, it's about the success of the intervention and the journey of care more than it is the operator that provides each individual intervention. Um, 
so yeah, no, I think um, as I said, I think that underlines things quite nicely. Um, is there anything you think we haven't discussed? Um, I've certainly got most of my questions off my chest. I think. No, I think it's um, I think it's been really good covered. Um, certainly, all the issues that I uh, lie awake worrying about at night, and it's nice to it's good to talk about them. Um, it, it genuinely is. You know, uh, we're we're very proud of our of our system, but. Uh, we also need to be uh, you know, realistic and talk about the challenges and, and you know where we need to improve because um, there's, there's no one system perfect. Um, so I think we've covered a, a good bit of ground and, and hopefully it's food for thought for your listeners. Um, certainly food for thought for me. Um, just thinking, you know, I've been doing this job and this service for a long time and thinking about it from another perspective is is great. Yeah, no, it's certainly interesting to reflect because, as you say, having having looked at um, some airway stuff in the past and seen the similarities in terms, I actually find it surprising the similarities in terms of education and, and practice um, in our services, and then and that kind of stark difference in terms of the RSI. Um, it's certainly interesting to reflect on and, and get those kind of differing uh, opinions, I guess. Um, yeah, so yeah, absolutely. thanks for joining me. It's been um, it's been really good to chat, uh, and I uh, yeah appreciate you taking the time. No, thank you. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Uh, appreciate coming on, and um, yeah, stay safe. And I hope uh, things ease up a little over there. And, um, don't keep going the way they have. Looks like it has been. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 